welcome to Offkey, a member and labs podcast about music's professionals for non-music professionals. I'm your host, Linda Arnold. Hi, and welcome back to Offkey. This is an episode I've been really excited to share as I'm speaking to Elaine Bombery and Murray Porter. I got in touch with Elaine through learning about the National Indigenous Music Impact Study by the APTN, of which Elaine is a National Strategic Advisor. Elaine is also the manager of her partner, Murray Porter, who is a blues musician and a Juno winner of the 2012 Aboriginal Album of the Year Award. I talked to Elaine and Murray about their careers in music and some of the issues of Indigenous representation in music and entertainment. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Um, but yeah, I guess we can get started if that works for both of you. But thank you so much, Marie and Elaine, for coming on to Off Key. I really appreciate your time and, you know, the hassle. Obviously, it would have been really lovely if we could have done this in person, but the island and such. No problem. Um, and kind of how I've started every interview thus far, just kind of to get some context, um, is just kind of asking, like, where did you both grow up? My name is Marie Porter. And I played the blues. I was born on the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory in southern Ontario uh, in the 1900s, the mid-1900s, around exactly 1960. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I started in the music business when I was about, uh, well, I started listening to music when I was young. And then I got in a band when I was 17 and uh, never stopped. So almost 40 years. Have you always been playing the blues and kind of was that your music influence of what you were listening to when you were young as well? It's a little bit of both because when you first started, of course, you got to do the cover songs of the day if you want, you know, if you want to get the gig. So back in those days, I was doing all those songs. And and then I began to see that, uh, well, I'm just, you know, singing somebody else's ideas and somebody else's words and their thoughts. And I thought, well, gee, I got my own thoughts and I got issues. I got to deal with too, so I started writing my own songs. Cool. What um, you said, like music of the day, kind of what was it that you were like first covering and things like that? We're talking about uh, the Doobie Brothers and uh, you know Fleetwood Mac, and, uh, and for me it was you know the Blues Guys, Johnny Winter, Eric Clapton, and uh, those kind of guys. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and what about you, Elaine? Kind of where did you grow up? Oh, actually, I'm one of them. They're urban Indians. <laughs> I grew up in uh, downtown Toronto. Um, yeah, my uh, parents, um, my mom, my late mother was uh, Anishinaabe, which is Ojibwe, from uh, Chimney Sing, which is Christian Island in Georgian Bay. And uh, my father is Cayuga from Six Nations. So Marie and I are from the same reserve, um, Six Nations. And, uh, yeah, they met in downtown Toronto. My mom had, uh, was in residential school for 10 years from six to 16. And then from high school, she went to business college in Toronto uh, to become a secretary. And she met my dad on a streetcar. And, uh, so we weren't welcome in either community because, you know, my mom was Roman Catholic and my dad was uh traditional longhouse. So, uh, it wasn't cool for them to marry each other. It's like any religion, right? It's like a Jewish person marrying a Catholic. You know, it's anywhere it crosses religious boundaries and stuff. So that's why we grew up in Toronto. Okay. What brought you, I guess, both of you to the West Coast then? Moving to Hadalus? Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I had been playing music in my area of uh, Southern Ontario for over 30 years. And so it began to see, uh, to be like, oh, it's like the him again thing. I began to be a, like old hat. And uh, Elaine was looking for new adventures and we decided to go to the West Coast where we knew lots of people and, uh, and where I was uh, sort of like fresh meat out here. You know what I mean? And so the, I, was, I was able to uh, make a great living. I've been here now. Uh, both of us for almost 13 years, and uh, I've been making uh, my living off the avails of music all this time, so that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, it's really cool to hear that story because I feel like a lot, um, just from like a music, sorry, I just hit my mic, that was really loud, um, okay. just from the music perspective, 
a lot of artists I've talked to here um, for the podcast and kind of in general, I think, are looking kind of to move to Toronto because that's kind of the center of the scene supposedly in Canada. So it's kind of interesting that you guys made the move out west instead. Yeah. It's a different audience for me. And uh, uh, as you know, like the, the clubs are, uh, the live music clubs are sort of uh, closing down because of the uh, the DJ thing, you know. So uh, there's fewer and fewer venues. And uh, we recently uh, had visions of moving back to Toronto. And, uh, and I listened to my friends over there and they're saying the same thing that the venues are, are, are becoming less and less. And so, uh, uh, the I like, cost I, of living is the same in Toronto. So as it is in Vancouver, but we get a little bit better weather, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Not so much this year without like weird snowy week, but generally. This snow that I saw in all the 13 oh, years I've been here. We're just so soft. Come <laughs> yeah. on. We are so soft. It's so funny to watch the cities <laughs> when the snow comes. Everything yeah. shuts down. <laughs> um, Elaine, how did you kind of first get involved into the music industry? Were you a musician? Are you a musician as well yourself, I should ask? Uh, no, 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 I'm not a musician. But I just, I'm, like, I grew up, I, I always appreciated music. And it was always big in our family uh like my dad would buy the albums you know like I grew up listening to Charlie Pride, Hale Feliciano, um, a number of instrumental guitarists and uh he'd have some blues in there as well and uh Buffy St. Marie you know when she started recording I saw her albums in our family mix and stuff so it was always something you know our family always really enjoyed and took pride in buying you know the a record player or a stereo system you know and you know always enjoyed getting a transistor radio and stuff like that so it's I've just always enjoyed it and my dad um made sure we'd go see live music when possible so this uh in growing up in Toronto there used to be uh, the Ontario place at the right at the waterfront there. And they used to have a concert series there in a revolving stage. And uh, he took us there to see B.B. King. And we already had his album at home, so I knew his music. But to see him live, I was like maybe 11 or 12 years old. And I just went, oh, my gosh, who is this guy? And I just sat there on the hill watching it. And that's the first my intro to the blues. And uh, I just became a fan. And... Uh, I would just, it just really struck a chord with me, the blues. And I didn't understand till later and, you know, around my early twenties that I met some people, but I'll talk about the blues, native people and the blues. But anyway, um, yeah, it's just always been there. And then I got involved uh, in Six Nations uh, with the community radio station, being on the board and then being asked by Gary Farmer, who's one of our well-known actors from Six Nations to come on and do a show. So that's how I started. And then, it all just rolled and snowballed and yeah. <laughs> How did the two of you meet? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Um, actually it's funny cause I had booked, uh, I, at the time when I first met Murray, I was, um, uh, be- this is before, just the year before I got into the business, I was working at the, um, uh, union of Ontario Indians and I got the job to organize the, the conference and, you know, organize the gala dance and everything like that, hire the band and whatnot. So there was a, uh, a band out of Winnipeg called the Seaweed Band, who was our big, you know, native band at the time. They had a bus and they're traveling, touring across the country and they had Murray's band opening. So, and they were all from Six Nations. So, and this was at a gig in Thunder Bay and it was a Chiefs of Ontario meeting and I had booked them, you know, I booked Seaweed and then, they were the opening and that's how I met Murray and the boys. That's when I was, I was 25 years old. <laughs> oh, and I'm awesome. now 57, right? Yeah. Yeah. Murray's 58 and I'm 57. Roughly. <laughs> I'm not sure about my age. So. <laughs> but yeah, a long time ago. Oh, that's such a nice story. What is your role? So Murray, you said that you're like still like a working musician, obviously. Um, I've like seen that you're still playing gigs and releasing new music. But Elaine, like what's your kind of current role in the industry now? Or are you not working as much in music? Oh, no, I just work solely with uh, Murray, uh, representing him. Um, but there, there really is a need for someone to do more of this kind of work, handle, the, you know, be a manager for the musicians and uh 
Um, so I ha- handled his career. We had to produce the album, uh, you know, raise the money. We had to record the songs. And actually, I helped write a few words on this album. And um, just every aspect you can think of, you know, manufacturing the CD, getting the barcode to sending out the submissions for festivals, creating the website. So it's a lot of different things. And it's just pretty intensive for one person. Mm -hmm. When you say um, this is kind of something we've like had a couple um, now, like artist manager kind of duos on the podcast and kind of your role when it comes to like you were saying kind of raising like funding and stuff like that like what does that entail like I know in Canada we're quite lucky we have a lot of public funding available um was that kind of what you guys were doing for this uh absolutely not (laughs) we tried uh to get funding through uh, one of the bigger uh you know public funders but we were turned down twice um, so, you know, we did get a bit discouraged and then we just said, well, we know some very successful business people. So we actually, there is no government, um, logo on Murray's new CD. Uh, the, the sponsors, our major sponsors, um, are, uh, three companies. Uh, one is Oshwegan Speedway. There's a big speedway on our reserve. Yeah. They became a sponsor, uh, N2N Network, which is an online gambling a group, and as well as Cosmic Pig Studios, who produced the album, Murray's uh, executive producer, guitar player. That's his studio. So with those three, we were able to put the album together. Not one provincial or government uh, funding agencies on this album. Oh, wow. That's cool, though, that you were able to do it that way still. Yeah, man. So, like, when you're a record company, I've been with a couple of different record companies, and... uh They'll say, okay, I got to go do this show. Well, here's a box of CDs. We'll give them to you for 12 bucks a piece. And then you sell them for 20 and then, you know, you'll get eight bucks. And so, but now um, if I sell over 20 bucks, I get the 20 bucks, you, you know, and you know what I mean? And, and the, the way things are now with the um, internet, uh, you don't, nobody really has record companies anymore. I mean, there's no big because you can anybody can make a recording with the proper equipment and any small. I recorded my Juno Award winning album in uh, 2012 in a in a spare bedroom in someone's house and, and uh, it's becoming um, more independent and that's what I like to see because that's you know a lot of us don't. It's pretty hard to get a record company to hire a 58 year old guy uh, to be a, you know, a poster child for the record company so. Um, we could do our own thing, and, and that's that's a, that's that's a great thing about what's happening in the music business right now. Yeah, I was talking um, recently to Alexis Young, and she is like she went to school for um, graphic design, and she was kind of saying like it's such kind of a DIY time in the industry right now. Like everyone really is just kind of figuring it out for themselves. Like young artists are producing stuff on their own, and because of yeah, the way that distribution has changed and the way that releasing music has changed, the fact that it's so kind of, to a degree, like so democratized, I guess, like anyone can just put stuff out there. And if it... True that, true that. And and, and CDs are now are um, passe. They're, and, and 10 years from now, they're going to say, what's a CD? Uh, everything is digital now. So it, it uh, turns out that the musicians make less and less money. Um, uh, you know, as the digital distribution goes by. And uh, so now you'll see um, how many artists are touring um, and charging, you know, like upwards of $200 a chair to go see them play. And so that's what they're doing to to uh, make the money now because they're not making any money through uh, uh, CD sales and stuff. So um, that's why the artists are hitting the road, you know, and, you know, bringing their show on the road and make, that's where they make lots of money. So, you know, with the, with the t-shirts and the hats and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Yeah. They make big money. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I was talking to a previous guest about this, how, you know, touring was before much more of a marketing activity, whereas the music was the income generating activity, Yeah, (laughs) but it sounds a lot like it's really flipped. Yeah. The roles have reversed. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's cool. And I guess like you would know kind of a lot of the artists I've spoken to have been really, really young. So they've only ever really been in the industry, like active for the most part um, in like operating through the digital landscape. So I guess you would know kind of better than anyone that how things have changed. Yeah. It, well, it, the, the learning curve from just from his last album was like uh, 2012 when it was or 11 when it was released. And the learning curve from then to now, you know, is is huge. You know, just seeing, you know, everything, digital, digital music platforms here and there and all the online streaming services and just like, and you're making how much money for this? And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe the pittance, you know, that these streaming services are paying for music. It's just, it's pretty sad. Um, in in the Indigenous community, I think we're one of the few, although actually I should say the older generation we still like cds you know we still like and the albums of course have you know researched here and there in different you know pockets across the country and stuff i think it's pretty cool when an album you know an artist can do an album like that um but anyway um but you know the indigenous community still is one of the few communities that likes to buy cds you know well people like to buy cds at at shows oh folk festivals too you gotta have cds for a memento they like a memento and you can sign it and you know, put their name on it, and and to, to them, it's worth it, you know. And so, I, I I basically make my my CDs for the festivals and for selling off stage because you can make some extra money, and and um, and people get to have a little memento of their time, you know. Totally for sure, and like we're still at a, you know, if your audience isn't primarily people like under like twenty five, for example, mm-hmm. there's still like a big generation of people that are still they have yet to adapt like the learning curve as you were saying that is has been so big in like the last five ten years um and even like even younger people as well like we still obviously like there's the big resurgence in like records and vinyls people still like having physical stuff yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah i don't like my entire music library to be in the palm of my hand uh you know the cd cover i used to love getting an lp and bringing it home and looking at the artwork and reading on the inside about their what liner notes and who where it was recorded and who were the musicians and all that kind of stuff. I couldn't wait to get it home to look at it, you know. And now it's just a a blip on your screen and it's just not quite the same. No, not at all. Yeah, it's definitely I think about balance. It's nice it's so accessible now and like you do have access to so much, but yeah, I do think that you do miss quite a bit. I remember staring at Santana's albums for hours, <laughs> checking out all these these this artwork, man. Right? It was so cool. I loved it, man. Yeah, I think that's a big part um with like why like vinyls have been pushed like so hard now and like album artwork is still like so important and things like that cuz yeah, there's so much creativity that can go alongside music that it's I really hope that that never becomes lost and I don't think it will um I think there's going to be there will be a resurgence phases you know there's always waves of trends and stuff in the music industry you know and everything old is new again applies to a lot of things you You remember disco (laughs) remember punk rock you know and and those all those things morph into other things now and then there's dance music and now there's uh you know um punk folk there's you know all these different uh, uh different genres and so you just take the music that you've listened to and pile it all in a big blender and put your own head inside it and then you come up with your you, you know the music doesn't uh, just arrive uh, it's, it's a culmination of all you've listened to your parents listened to the stuff you hear on the radio and uh and it comes down to you to filter it all out and break it to your own yeah exactly Um, for listeners who are like perhaps unfamiliar with kind of your music and like your sound, um, I know you said that you're a blues artist, but kind of how would you like describe your music, I guess, and kind of what drew you to blues in the first place? Well, I first uh, heard the blues as a young teenager. Um, I grew up in Southern Ontario and we lived around the Great Lakes and on the AM radio late at night, you could get. Uh, radio stations from Detroit and Buffalo, New York, and Chicago, Illinois. And one night I was listening to the, the AM radio, and this radio station came out, out of Chicago, and I was listening to the music, and I heard B.B. King sing, The Thrill is Gone. And I thought, uh, oh, 
man, what kind of music is this? I never heard this before. I grew up in a household of, uh, you know, Roy Acuff and uh, Merle Haggard and George Jones. And, and then all of a sudden I heard this and, and the guy said, it's blues radio. And so, man, I, I found a purpose that day. Uh, I went out and bought all, all the blues records I could find. And I, was, I guess I was about 15 or 14. And then I taught myself how to play the piano because I, I loved the music so much. And I, I could sing, I, I found out somehow. Um, so yeah, I, I just willed myself basically to play the music, play blues. That's so awesome. I'm so in awe of people that can teach themselves instruments and like learn that way. Like I've played piano my whole life, but it was very like structured, like classical piano and like even trying to wrap my head around like jazz and things like that you know like we're doing something that's not on the page yeah exactly i don't know how to do i mean i stopped like probably sooner than i should have because unfortunately (laughs) my teacher retired but like yeah yeah it's really it's really too bad and i always kind of i'm so happy i can play something yes well it's it's a a skill that uh, never leaves you and it it really uh, makes your mind work yeah you know, because your left hand, uh, left side of your brain works the right side of your body, and the left side of your brain. And then you got creativity. You got, uh, uh, for me, I have to remember the lyrics. I have to remember the chords. I have to remember the uh, the melody. And then I have to remember what, how, where, you know, my hand, all this stuff at the same time. So your brain is just like sizzling when you're, when you're playing and singing a song. Yeah, I find I often, like during stressful periods or when like, school there's a lot going on I'm always at the piano because it's the one thing that you can't have another distraction going on in your head no it, you just, it, it doesn't even have to be a note it could just be a lovely little scale and yeah. just go on it's like waves of uh, on the ocean you know mm-hmm. exactly um so to kind of loop things around a tiny bit I guess Elaine, we had talked about this earlier a bit, um, but we connected through Jennifer David of Envision Insight Group initially because we were really interested in learning more about the National Indigenous Music Impact Study. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of for listeners who are like unfamiliar with Envision and the Aboriginal People's Television Network who are like running the study, basically, could you kind of tell me a bit more about, you know, the groups, the study and kind of how you fit into the mix there, I guess? (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, uh, Envision is uh, under the leadership of Jennifer David. Uh, she's their project manager. And they're uh, um, an ind- Indigenous-owned consulting company. Uh, the majority, actually, uh, um, the major shareholders are Indigenous of this consulting company. And they have offices in Ottawa and Iqaluit. So when there was an RFP, which is a request for proposals from APTN, which is the Aboriginal People's Television Network, um, because they wanted to see what was going on with the Indigenous music industry in the country. So that's they put out a a big call for requests for proposals. And it was Envision who were successful in uh, with the bid. Um, so the, the scope of the project, uh, this is right from the RFP, um, the scope of the project is to better understand the current contributions of the Indigenous music community working in Canada and obtain a general overview of the current landscape of this community uh, that this community operates within. And I've um, got uh, asked to participate um, as a national advisor for the overall uh, study and then also the uh, BC uh, representative. So I had uh, two roles um, in there. So the uh, interviews, part of my job as an advisor for BC was to, you know, uh, get the names of the of the musicians who are emerging, you know, mid-career and established uh, Indigenous musicians so that uh, I went to another consulting firm to do all these interviews. And APTN also had a um, an online survey uh, right through their website as well. That was up for a couple, uh, was up for a couple of months, two and a half months maybe. And so you got to um, submit to the study and then your name got to go in for a draw. So there was like a, they had a couple of uh, deadlines and uh, you could actually win a thousand dollars cash by submitting the online survey. So if that's not incentive enough to complete the survey, I don't know what it is. So 
So there was a, you know, a good turnout. So right now what's happening is the interview phase is done. And so is the online survey. So um, now what they're doing, um, the uh, it, like for all the exact information, you'd have to get a hold of Sky Bridges at APTN. But right now they're doing an economic analysis of all the of all of the responses from the surveys and the interviews, and they'll have a draft uh, study by May. And then it's got to get translated into French, and it'll be made public on APTN's web website sometime after June. Okay, cool. So when you were doing interviews, kind of was that like you said, we're saying with musicians and things like that, like what were some of like the things that you were learning or? Um, no, I didn't actually do the interviews. My, my role as an advisor was to uh, go over the list of questions. Um, so I can't say anything in terms of the responses because I don't know. So it was just, you know, overseeing the questions and all of that. So it was just, you know, seeing how everyone was doing and it was for everyone involved in all different levels of the music industry, you know, not only singing, not only the artists, but people working behind the scenes too. As, and as well, they wanted to find out who some of the non-Indigenous uh, players were as well, working with our musicians in the studio and stuff. And yeah. So it's, it's, it's an interesting concept and, you know, and I, um, it, you know, I'm interested to see what the feedback will be and everything. And, uh, one has never happened before so yeah we'll see see what happens yeah i'm like really interesting you said the end of like june like sometime in the summer is when they'll be yeah okay cool. final yeah will be posted the big reveal <laughs> Um, I read as well that you're actually one of the co-creators of the indigenous music album of the year category with the juno awards um, along with Buffy St. Marie, and that she had actually dedicated her 2018 win of the award to you. Um, this is like, this is pretty crazy to me. Um, can you tell me kind of more about this and just like the process and like the importance in creating that category and kind of how you and Buffy went about, you know, making this even happen? Yeah, that was... Um... Yeah, that was, those were very interesting times. Um, that was around in the, the early 1990s. I think it was about 93 or so. Um, as a, what I mentioned earlier about getting into music and everything, and then I, I got involved with our community radio station at Six Nations and uh, with Gary Farmer and started collecting all this Indigenous music. And uh, I had friends who worked in the industry in, in Toronto. Um, one lady, Anne McKeegan, had put my name in to be a judge for uh, one of the categories at the Junos. And it, then it was called, I think, World Beat or something like that, World Beat category. And when you're a judge at the Junos, you can't say you're a judge because you sign a confidentiality agreement right away. And uh, so at that time, that's when Cashton first came out with music and um they were very popular across the country and uh, another band called seventh fire and they didn't know where to put their music. So they put them into world beat. So when I was a judge there, you, you don't, you can't change the criteria when you're a judge, you just listen and, you know, vote in the comfort of your own home. And you can't tell anyone of, obviously, like I said, you're a judge and um, they, uh, after that whole June, after that Junos were was over, I got invited again by Anne to come to a meeting in Toronto and be part of the committee. And I said, sure. So I went and uh, and I said, well, I don't get it. You know, I says, why is native music in here? And there was like reggae, soca, salsa, and all these other descriptions of world you know, world beat music. And uh, I said, our music doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong there, you know, and none of these categories. And the uh, president of, of Karis, which is the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, at the time, her name was Daisy Falls. She was sitting beside me and she leans over and she says, start a category. And I went, and I just laughed. And I chuckled, oh yeah, right, start a category. And she goes, come into my office after this meeting. So I went in. And she says, she told me all I have to do is document the amount of Indigenous recordings in the previous year and in the coming year. And it had to be, you know, so many numbers. And because I was doing, you know, my res radio thing, I, I knew who was recording. And I said, I'm sure I can, you know, document this. And then my friend Curtis Johnny, also known as Shingoose, 
and I worked together a lot on different things and Aboriginal music project in Toronto. And uh, I said, Goose, I says, I think we can, you know, get this category going. And he said, let's do it. And so I just, you know, started doing the number thing. And at the time it was facts, facts, letters. (laughs) This is before emails and everything. So my liberal fax machine on the res was just pumping out letters, you know, coming in from different artists saying, oh yeah, this is what I recorded last year. People, you know, telling me what they had in the coming year. So, you know, I documented, like they needed like 15 recordings in the previous year and 15 in the coming year. And I was able to document like 25 previous and 40 in the coming year, you know, so the numbers were, were more than okay. And it wasn't until like about three days before the Junos. I mean, but we, we were given the uh, a time to do a presentation before the Karis board. And it was three days before I get a phone call, like right out of the blue and it's Buffy St. Marie. And I just went, you know, I thought someone was pulling my leg. You know, I was like, what? And, and then she explained, she goes, oh, I hear, dear, you're doing this thing and doing a presentation to just wondering if I could be of any help. And I was just blown away. And and, uh, and her and Shingus were friends and had worked together on a number of things over the years. And uh, so we go and meet her at her hotel that night. She buys us dinner and sat down with her. But first I got, I did the fan thing. You know, I, I got her to yeah. our family albums, you know. <laughs> oh, she's so cool. I've only like just read a bit about her, but. Oh. My God, I was just taken away, you know, and then I said, okay, now get get focused here, you know, okay, got the fan thing out of the way, <laughs> you know, we'll have dinner and then we'll talk about, you know, the strategy, you know, what we're going to do the next day for the presentation. And so the, after dessert and everything, and uh, and we and Buffy says, okay, how are we going to do this? Are we going to talk strategy? And then I spoke up and I said, strategy or not? I said, Buffy, you're the first person to walk into the boardroom. And for me, that's strategy enough, right? (laughs) I'll be the underling any day to Buffy, you know? So that was pretty cool. And she had written this, this very eloquent essay. I wish I, I'm sure she still has it. She's so organized and everything, but, um, uh, essay she wrote and in the present she she gave at the beginning of our, our presentation and she compared what was happening with indigenous music being recorded at that time as to to where black music was in like the 30s and 40s you know so there's a really uh, beautiful the way she stated everything was just so beautifully and eloquently done and uh, then I came in with the numbers you know of what was going on with all the recordings and the different genres that were happening and and then Shingus gave an overall, you know, uh, history, I guess, of the recording of Indigenous people recording in the country. Uh, so, yeah, it was a really good little team. And then we did our we had 20 minutes to give our presentation. Uh, we had a couple other supporters with us, too. And um, they kicked us out of the boardroom for 20 minutes and brought us back in. And they said, OK, you got the category. And and they said, but the thing is, you can't say anything for six weeks. So we had to sit on it. Oh God! <laughs> for a very long six weeks <laughs> till the till the Juno press conference that it could be announced. So it was like, yeah, it was exciting, but we just had to just keep a lid on it. <laughs> what like how have you seen kind of the inner the energy the industry sorry change um, since then. Well, back then it was the old model, you know, the big, uh, the big record labels and everything. And, you know, and I did see the sharks emerge because, you know, people thought there was going to be, you know, millions and millions of dollars to be made. I guess it was new and we had a Juno, you know what I mean, for our category. So I got to see those sharks, you know, they came out, they weren't native people. They were, you know bunch of white guys record company executives yeah people you know in behind the scenes and stuff and some were quite rude um and I just went oh no this is not how it's supposed to go (laughs) so you know you had to deal with that and then when they all realized they weren't going to make a a, you know a bunch of money shitload of money then they bailed yeah everyone bailed and all these little companies went falling to the wayside and little record labels and stuff so now, you know, it's it's the whole, you know, the swing of the pendulum. It's just like crazy. It's just uh, to see it go from, you know, very, I, you know, kind of strange energies and stuff. But now people are more in control. 
you know, there's not, it's not, dom- the music industry is not, sure it's dominated by pop tarts and, you know, whatever else is going on out there, but people can, you know, get their own music out there more than before again, because of the technologies become so portable. Yeah. I like it better now, actually. People have a choice. Yeah, you have a lot more control over what you can, you know, hear and put out and how you do it. Yeah, and you decide when and what you're going to listen to, much like television, right? It's the same thing. Yeah, totally. It's like, um, what's it called? I was talking to this about my coworker the other day, but like the Pareto principle that 80% of like money in an industry is made from, excuse me, 12 or 20% of like what's actually going on, but how, you know, technology and streaming and stuff allows us to access kind of this entire huge group of like this entire group that caters to so many more niches and tastes and everything. Yeah. Um, and it yeah, allows for independence a lot more to get their voice heard, which is really nice. Yeah. How has the music industry kind of since you introduced the category, like have you noticed a change for indigenous artists? And like in terms of opportunity and things like that? Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Like uh, to have this, the the Indigenous Juno, while then it was called the Aboriginal Album of the Year. No, it was called the Best Music of Aboriginal Canada. You know, the names changed over the years and stuff. But anyway, uh, we were the second um, country in the world to honor its Indigenous people and its music. The first one was Australia. So um, when I was doing my research to find out what was going on in other countries where I knew there was vibrant, you know, scenes happening. Yeah, we were we were number two to make that happen. And then shortly after that, you started seeing the momentum, you know, across Turtle Island, which is North America. In the States, they started the Native American Music Awards. Then there was a Canadian Aboriginal Music Awards. Then the People's Choice Awards and then the Indian Summer Music Awards, you know, just all these awards started popping up. Indigenous radio as well in Ontario emerged like never before uh, because they weren't allowed to have a radio license, you know, up until like the early 1990s. When we started our radio at Six Nations, we were kind of the leaders in that. But now, you know, there's Indigenous radio. And now, again, the technology, you know, radio is online. I can listen to Res Radio from home here anytime. You know, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's been huge, huge changes. And then the genres, too. Like, everyone's playing what they want to play. You know, like Jeremy Dutcher, the winner of the the Polaris and this year's Juno. Like, no one's ever done what he's done. You know, so I think that we're on pretty cool times, you know. The art do and say what they want. Yeah, it's really cool to see, too, like, a whole, like, different generation of artists, like, across, like, all cultural backgrounds kind of trying to define themselves. Um, I'm speaking more so from a conversation that I had um, with a visual artist who was First Nations and he was kind of saying it's really important for him to be recognized, not, he's like, I don't want to be seen just as a really good Indigenous artist. He was like, I want to, I'm, I'm a really good artist, period. He's like, but I'm really happy to be able to share my cultural background and represent that as well. But I think he struggled a lot with feeling categorized. Is that something that you kind of come across at all um, in maybe like or have come across at all in your career, Murray, and kind of how like. I was just going to say join the club. Um, When I first began, we were all expected to either play folk music or traditional music, you know, and. Nobody ever expected that it was going to be jazz players and uh, classical players and uh, blues musicians, uh, country artists. And uh, when we first got recognized um, as, a, as a category, it kind of launched everybody into a mode of, well, hey, you know, if he can do it, then I can do it. And then it began, uh, you know, get bigger and it's just like snowballed and now there's so many uh wonderful great artists like tanya degak and crystal shawanda and, and and all these wonderful wonderful artists that are emerging and 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 using their culture and using it within the constraints of popular music which which uh you know if you want to succeed that's what i have to do so i i've read blues music in the constraints of 
blues time changes and chord changes and and, and whatnot. Uh, but I can still convey my message uh, through my lyrics through those uh, constraints of uh, genres. So it's it's pretty cool. Uh, you have to use both worlds because we, that's the way we grew up. Totally. Yeah, I think it's really I think it's really interesting. Um, and like not not so much like on the podcast, but like from a personal level, like I'm. Um, happy Vietnamese mm -hmm. and I often find like you get into a conversation and it's always just like oh like yada 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 this about your background oh like aren't you like this because of this and it's like what what yeah, well, <laughs> you know, well, like, you're native I know a guy in Alberta yeah and you're you just know like, him you know it's like we're all cousins or something you know like yeah it's like no, no <laughs> not exactly no, no, that guy. it's like oh like you do this too it's like yeah <laughs> so you must know what's his name yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that's the way things go and you know it, it's it's really changed uh from when i was a kid because uh, you could not vote then you know natives could not vote till the 50s 1960. Oh, that's right, 1960. The year I was born, in fact. And so, yeah, yeah. So things have changed, and and uh, uh, in recent years, uh, the millennials have uh, realized now that what happened then. You know, even though they're, it's not, you know, they're not directly involved. They realize, they see what what has happened to us, and the way they took away everything: the cultures, the children, the land. The, you know, and uh, so it's a different kind of a world now. And, uh, and things are, are changing for the better, I think, anyway. In my mind, we, we have more opportunities available to us. And we're beginning to uh, get taken seriously as a blues artist, not a native blues artist, as a jazz artist, not a native jazz artist, if you know what I mean. And so we're becoming to, to cross into those uh, mainstream genres. And that's been my goal ever since I began this journey of music. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's so cool. It is such like it's a very exciting time. And I think it's like also a very hopeful time for, you know, anyone from a minority group right now. Um, <laughs> it's the anti-Trump movement, man. Oh, don't bring up that awful name here. That's okay. enough. I mean, number 45. Sorry. Number 45. Yes, yeah. right. He's the 45th president. I refuse to. Oh, OK. So he's, he's number 45. OK, that's enough space. Take <laughs> <laughs> moving on yeah that we could be a whole different podcast yeah, sure. a whole different not here not now <laughs> um okay so it's a bypass trump um we'll go in february you just released your third feature albums as you were saying stand up yes um can you tell me a little bit more about it and kind of what inspired some of the tracks um yeah maybe a bit more about how the process was different since the previous release in 2012 i think you were saying yeah the world um, uh, took a turn there for a while. Uh, and uh, we began to realize that we had to stand, start standing up for the water, the pipelines we're going to go through. And uh, it, it could have contaminated so much water. And um, the Idle No More movement came along. And, you know, like our people try, are finally trying to stand up uh, for ourselves, you know. And, having the um the colonizers just own up to what they signed in the first place you know what i mean it, it it's uh it, it's just unrealistic to me that they could just quash things and just say oh no we need this land now because we're going to build a dam over here and so you guys all have to move and you know they just you know when they um find oil they find minerals they whatever it is they need uh, we become expendable. And, uh, and so it, it riled me up a bit. And so that made this album uh, a bit more political than uh, my re most recent album in 2012. This is this has songs about the murdered and missing women called Highway 16. Uh, the opening track is called The Water, and it's about standing up for uh, the water, not just the oceans, but the fresh water of our, of our world. There's uh, also, like, hopeful music, um, I got a song called In the Same Canoe and it's just about uh, we all got to live together on this uh, big blue ball in the middle of space and uh, so we need to start to look after each other and look after this place where we uh, we're, we're generally uh, we call it uh, looking after it and uh, just 
tending to nature so for the next generation and not to exploit it for all it's worth and and so just that uh, kind of a message uh, inspired me to do a lot of these songs and um of course i i, I do love my uh my love songs too so there's a few of those in there as well always have to have a few of those gotta have them man <laughs> Um, and you were saying before, kind of, you've co-written songs together, the two of you. Um, how, like, what was that process kind of like? And, like, Elaine was writing with Murray kind of your first, like, foray into lyrics and writing? Or have you always kind of been into writing and poetry? Elaine, I'll let her explain it, but she was into poetry. And so you go. <laughs> As a child, right? You know, I, I enjoyed writing poems off and... Um got, you know, a couple of poems published as a kid, you know, just very small things, but, you know, didn't really pay attention to it. And then just, it just happened, you know, just the first time I ever wrote anything was a, a song called uh, Call You Baby. And I just, you know, just kind of woke me up in the middle of the night. I went to my laptop. I was still living on the reserve then. And then I typed out all these words and I just didn't know what it was. And then and then I showed it to Murray and he goes, I think there's something here, you know? And then I said, what do you mean? And he goes, I think this might be a song. And like, I had no clue, you know, I just wrote words. So that's how it's happened. I've just written stuff, you know, and I've hidden stuff in my files and just, you know, and he wants to know if I have anything written down. I went, oh, I have this and I'll show it to him. And then, you know, and then he takes it. It's like, I'm in the other room and he's in this room here with his keyboard. And, uh, he just starts working his magic and then he adjusts some words and everything. But our, our the first one we ever really did concentrate and just say we're going to write together is um, after uh, then Prime Minister Harper gave the apology to the Indian residential school survivors. And that's part of our history. You know, we're intergenerational uh, residential school survivors, our own selves. So that pain is very inherent, you know. And um, so when we heard the apology, it really shook us to the core you know it was a really heavy week after that and then it was actually a week and then we woke up that morning and I said someone's got to write a song about this apology and then and then we both looked at each other well why don't we you know and so that we sat down and then I think what about two hours later we had the words pretty much we had the words about two hours and then and then he started you know working on the music for it and it was just oh my god it was when we knew it was done we were just bawling our eyes out well we bawled our eyes out through the whole thing <laughs> yeah I imagine that was sort of really heavy yeah process yeah it really was and it became um uh you know, one of the signature songs for what was happening, you know, it's still happening. And we, we shared it with a, a lot of student filmmakers who were doing, you know, their doc, student doc films on the subject. And uh, another friend of ours, Barb Cramner, had it um, as a theme song for her documentary, which went on to win a number of awards, uh, particularly down in San Francisco at the Indian Film Festival there, Murray. And I got to go down to the film festival where she was nominated and he got to play the song on the awards and she won, you know, so it was really sweet. And uh, yeah, so that song really impacts a lot of people uh, and it's called Is Sorry Enough. So yeah, that really was intense. And then the water, um, I just written most of the words again, because where we live, we live here on the Capilano Reserve. So right now, you know, we're looking at the, the ocean and Stanley Park, the bridge. We live in a beautiful place and looking at the island right now, you know. <laughs> so we see the water every day and then just knowing what's happening. And even in our own community of Six Nations, you know, most of the reserves have been under boil uh, water advisory for, you know, over a decade if not more, in some parts of the reserve. That's crazy to me that there's still parts of the Yeah, like there a lot, in, and it's in our communities. It's the indigenous communities where the water, you know, there's not a lot. So anyway, you know, that's how it's happened. And uh, it's, I just, like, I was so honored, and I, I couldn't say enough that the first words I write get put to music by Murray Porter. I was, I became a little bit fan-struck my own <laughs> Oh, sorry, Murray. I just slap in his back. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And you guys are a household full of Junos as well now. Hey, you've got Murray's, you've got... <laughs> yeah. Mine's a gift, but it's still a Juno. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so cool. I mean, arguably they could all be yours because you did 
Oh. <laughs> hey, she's got something. We have hundreds of Junos. <laughs> we'll have to get a Juno room. Yeah. Like 25 of them. Like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, Mur, you've, like, I read that you've performed kind of all over the world throughout your career. And you shared the stage with some, you know, really incredible, well known oh, talents, yeah. such as, you know, Etta James and the Funk Brothers. Um, just for like a lighter question, like, what? were some of kind of the standout performances of your career and like who are, yeah, I guess like the highlights that you've maybe shared the stage with. Yeah, I guess uh, I got to play at the, uh, the Lincoln center and uh, outdoors concert in New York city. And uh, it was a, a huge concert. My parents came and well, the Lincoln center is the Lincoln center, obviously. And uh, I got to open up for Mavis Staples uh i shared the stage with like the funk brothers uh jeez there's so many bb king. king i got to play a show with bb king i got to meet him and Kowati's bus and say hi man there's been so many well, other canadian guys tom cochran uh the guess who guy uh burton cummings uh um, so what's a good story? What's your best story? My best story? Yes. My best story. Okay, here, here here's my best, my best story of all time. Is uh, I was playing down in Tulalip, which is uh, north of Vancouver, down in, I mean, south of Vancouver, down in Washington State. And I uh, was opening a show for Etta James and B.B. King. So like totally mellow, small crowd. You know, and it was like a casino, right? So it was an outdoor concert. And uh, so I did my my shtick, you know, and I, you know, BB was amazing, a wonderful man. He got he met my parents and my friends, and my friend, uh, the actress Tattoo Carlo was with us, and we all took pictures and everything it was great. But uh, I finished my set, and uh, she had finished her set, and BB was getting ready, and we all had little trailers in the back, and so uh, there's my trailer, and there's her trailer, and. Then, BB had his trailer for his band, but he he stayed on his bus. Anyways, I'm walking by Etta James' trailer, and I see her uh, sitting on the couch there by herself, and there's nobody around. So I, you know, I walked on over and I knocked on the door, and she goes, "Who is it?" Like Etta James would, and said, "Hello, uh, excuse me, ma'am. My, my name is uh, Murray Porter, and I'm a Mohawk blues man. I opened up the show tonight." He goes, "Wait a minute, you're native." I said, yes, ma'am, I, I, yeah, I am. She goes, well, get in here. And opened up the screen door and I walked in. And she put out her hand and I thought she was going to shake my hand. Nope, she pulled me right down on her lap and she gave me a big red lipstick kiss on my cheek. And she says, you know what? Us brown people got to stick together. And I floated out of that trailer and uh, I haven't looked back since. Wow, you got kissed by out of chain. I got a kiss by Etta James on the cheek with red lipstick. I kept it on my face for three days. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, that is a that's a good show story. <laughs> not too shabby. Yeah, not bad at all. Might be the best one we've had. <laughs> anyway, that was a cool moment. And meeting BB King was great because he was really the way he seemed. You know, back in those God rest both their souls, by the way. But uh, the way he seems on TV, that he was just like that. He was like your grandfather sitting there in a chair, and it was what, what a wonderful man. That's so nice when you like can meet people that you do like look up to, and, and they're are. and they're just the way you think they are. You know, I, I have some horror stories from other people who've met some of their idols, and they, you know they were complete jerks. You know, and that's not what you want to hear. And I was so glad to, to meet BB King on those terms, and so if his his memory uh, live on with me forever. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I guess kind of to wrap things up, I would love to know kind of what the two of you have coming up this year in terms of like projects and shows. Sure. We got a, well, we're going to be playing at the Calgary Blues Fest, obviously, uh, which is a great, great, great show um, this July. And I've got to. No, no, no. It's in August. Oh, it's in August. Yeah, see? So here are some of the dates for Murray Porter coming up uh, next month in April. Uh, Saturday, April 27th at the Fairview Pub. Uh, Murray guests with Gunther Klaus and friends from 4.30 till 8. 
Um, he's got a couple of private events, like he, he's performing on May 2nd for the Simon Fraser University for a private reception. Uh, May 10th, uh, we go to Ontario to my late mother's reserve and he's playing at a wedding. So he does play private fun- functions, <laughs> right? If need be. If need be, yes. We can talk. Um, and then also, because um, we're going to be in Ontario, um, he's scored another a couple other gigs on the Cattaraugus Keter- Reservation in upstate New York on May 16th and 17th. And then May 18th um, in Six Nations on our home community. And what's that one for? We're playing for a lacrosse team. Oh, for a lacrosse team. Oh, cool. And then the next date uh, back in Vancouver is on May 31st. We're doing Res Blues at the Fairview Pub. And uh, that's with Murray's band. And we've we've yet to announce our opening act. And then uh, Aboriginal Day, uh, actually National Indigenous Day, I should say, uh, June 21st. Uh, they have big celebrations at Trout Lake. and uh, In Vancouver. In Vancouver. And more than likely, you'll be there. Right. And then on July 6th and 7th is the Two Rivers Remix Music Festival, and that's in Lytton. There's going to be a whole bunch of performers there. Uh, uh, Helen Duguay is going to be doing some songs. Um, it's a huge lineup. Willie Thrasher, uh, Oz12 is hosting. It's going to be great, and it's free all ages, so that's July 6th and 7th. And then Murray mentioned the Calgary Blues Festival, which is in August, uh, August 2nd. Uh, his band will be flying to uh, Calgary. Cool. And I will make sure to link to all of these in the show notes as well, just so people can find, you know, tickets and stuff if need be. Um, And then I guess like one final question, where can people find, you know, like you and your music? What's the best way to kind of get a hold of you guys? You can go to murrayporter.com. C-A. Dot C-A. I'm sorry, murrayporter.ca. Let me get that correct. And I will have all the pertinent information uh, in the coming weeks. In the next couple of weeks, I'll have it all, that all set. And you'll be able to buy my, uh, my new CD online, too, as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate your time. It was lovely to talk to no you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, and thanks again to Elaine and Murray for coming on to speak to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really do help. If you have any topics that you'd like me to bring up with one of our next guests, you can either email me at offkey at membran.net, or you can send me a message at either Membran Labs or Lindsay Arnold on Instagram. Offkey and Fault Tolerant, our sibling podcast on tech and blockchain, are both produced by Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution services for the export of Canadian music. We're also exploring blockchain technology to create a more transparent and secure ecosystem for music rights owners to get paid. If you're interested in recording your own podcast at Membrane Labs, you can find out more information on our website, which is www.membranelabs.com. Anyways, that is it for today. I will see you next Monday. And to play you out, this is Murray Porter's The Water by Murray Porter and Elaine Bombery. Thank you. Bye. So calm to me Loving the water It comes so naturally It's a gift from my mother
Feel 